The Boys of Tech with Edwin Herman and Brett King. It's Monday. Thank you very much, everyone. Welcome along to episode 87 of The Boys of Tech for Monday, 11 October 2010. My name is Edwin Herman. I'd like to welcome my co-host, Brett King. Welcome along, Brett. Howdy. Brett, I've been having a look at uh, some of our demographics, the people that listen to us and where they're from. Mm -hmm. Not surprisingly, most of our audience is, in fact, from the US, so welcome if you're in America. Welcome along. And also, a lot of people listening to us in South Korea. Unless they're bots. I don't know. If you're from South Korea, welcome along. Thank you very much for joining us. New Zealand listeners feature quite a lot as well, not surprisingly. We're coming to you live from Wellington, New Zealand. Belgium, Canada, Germany, France, all feature in there as well. So if you're from those countries, nice to have you on board. Welcome along. I'm, I'm ashamed that you haven't learned a greeting in each of those native languages. Well, I can say bienvenue in French, which will cover Belgium, Canada, the French part of Canada, and uh, uh, what was the other one? France. Yeah, Germany. Uh, what's your German like, Brett? Uh, incredibly useless. Willkommen. Willkommen. Yes, willkommen. Uh, uh, that's as good as I can do. But uh, yeah, so I, I can't speak Korean, so I'm, I'm afraid, uh, you know, I can't greet the, the Koreans in their, in their own language. But there we go. So, and there's a whole heap of other countries as well. Um, and look, I, yeah, but I, I haven't got time to listen. We're list multinational. Them all. We are. We're multinational. We get people we are from all global. over. We've we've got global listeners. In fact, actually, Switzerland for a long time was a, a country that featured high on the list. <laughs> it's all your relatives, is it? <laughs> Must be. Yeah. <laughs> Funny because I haven't told them about this show. So there you go. It's a very multinational show. And on that note, I want to kick off with a story about a multi, well, multinational story, a crime ring. Uh, the FBI has basically uncovered a cyber crime ring that until now was undetected, and there's been more than 100 arrests in many countries, although admittedly 90% of them were from the US, but also mm. from the UK and uh, countries in Eastern Europe as well. Yes, but of that majority of arrests in the US, most of those are not US citizens. They are um, immigrants, uh, new immigrants, generally from the Eastern European countries where the other arrestees are from. They are the ground troops, you could, I guess you could say, the, the go-betweens or mules as what they, the FBI have called them, who, whose job was to set up accounts at banks and do the laundering of the money, do the filtering of the money that is stolen by the actual core group of fraudsters and criminals in Eastern Europe. Right. So these people are, are in the States. They, they, they set up bank accounts in the States and the money's laundered mm -hmm. from there. Yep. Wow. Because the majority of people who, you know, were victims uh, came from America. And so if you're going to do a commit crime, then you want to have your go-between in the country because it's easier to get the, the, the bank transfers. Oh, and it's Doesn't also a lot less suspicious, you know. A send, lot less suspicious. Send the money to a Nigerian bank account. It's like, yeah, right. Indeed. Or you know, send it 
directly to an Eastern European bank account. Yeah, but it, it came to the FBI attention when they noticed a, a row of suspicious bank transactions in Omaha back in 2009. So they've been investigating this for a while. This has been an, an ongoing uh, investigation. Yeah, over a year. Over a year, and they finally got enough information to, to nab these people. Fantastic. You know, this is actually not insignificant. This this crime ring, they reckon, has taken around 220 million US dollars. Yeah. In New yeah. Zealand terms, that's about 300 mil New Zealand. Mm-hmm. That's a huge amount of money. It is a huge amount of money that they were set up to, you know, go off and steal using all of the tricks that we've talked about many times when we've talked about the different, you know, internet fraud and we've talked about the different malware and uh, Trojans that have been getting installed on people's computers and the way that they've been doing it. And this is the, the sort of end result. These are the people who do it. These, you know, a small number of masterminds who will be in their home country sending out attacks on a uh, businesses and individuals in, in a foreign country and getting people in that country to act as a go-between, to filter that money, to ha- you know create those accounts where they could pull the stolen money and then transfer it out. Have you ever been a victim of internet fraud? Uh, no. Fortunately, I have. Well, I, I like to think that I'm pretty wary <laughs> and pretty internet savvy. Uh, I know what to click on and what not to click on. And I know to trust very little about what comes through the email unless I'm sure of where it comes from or if I'm, you know, was expecting it. As you know, I I run a few businesses and through that I've actually had fraudulent transactions come through. And let me tell you a little story in fact because one one of my businesses is selling software and I offer different plans, if you like, different subscription plans and so there's, you know, there's something you can buy for $30, something for $90, and something for $500. And you can immediately tell when a dodgy one comes through because, A, they don't take you up on the free trial for 30 days. Mm-hmm. And straight away, they purchase the $500, you know, full-blown software package. Yeah. It comes out of the blue. It's this out-of-the-blue purchase for the highest-end product. That immediately tells me it's it's a stolen credit card. And on the three occasions in the last four or five months that this has happened, I've identified them ahead of time. I said, that is fraudulent. It is not a real purchase. And I was right. It turns out, you know, a month and a half later, the bank, I get a letter from the bank saying, uh, can you give us all the details you have on this? Because uh, that's being disputed by the owner of the credit card, who's obviously innocent and the victim in all this. Mm-hmm. And the, here's the crazy thing, though. This this you won't believe. Or maybe you will believe. Maybe I'm just naive. But get this. The first time it happened, I identified this is this is a fraud. This is this can't be real. And in fact, just to back that up, I did a little bit of research on the name and the email address that was supplied. And sure enough, it was linked to some dodgy sites. Yeah. So what I did is I got on the phone and I phoned the bank and I said, Dear bank. I think I have identified a, a a fraudulent transaction. Would you like me to to give you the credit card number so you can get hold of the the cardholder and, and you know at the other end and and notify them or perhaps conduct some investigations? And I was absolutely gobsmacked by the response. The response from the bank was, 
Oh, no, no, there's, we can't really do anything. Just wait until the, the victim complains, if they do, and then the transaction will be reversed through the, the processes that govern that. And I was like, what? <laughs> I hear, I, I'm handing to, this to you on a plate. I've got, That's bizarre. I've got a, a working email address for this person. I can give you the full headers of the email. Uh, you know, I can tell you their IP address. Uh-huh. I can give you the, the credit card details that were used, and you won't do anything. I'm handing this to you on a silver plate. They don't want to know. <laughs> they do not want to know. They don't care. And this, I've done this twice. I thought maybe the first time I, I, I didn't get someone who was particularly helpful. The second time, exactly the same thing. They said, oh, yeah, no thanks, but um, the, the just wait, and if the person notices and lodges a, a you know. What's well, probably more cost effective to only take action when somebody notes it as being, you know, when the person affected notes well, it yeah, as that's, being fraudulent. That's, that's why they're doing it. But the reason I'm so gobsmacked is because I've heard advertising on, on the net and, and other places from Visa about how they, you know, the, the, they're so they're proactive in detecting fraud and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. really when it comes down to it, you know, I, I do wonder how much of that is just lip service. Mm. Really, I, I was. I, I know what you're saying, Brett. It, it you know costs some money to try and chase these, these things up. Well, manually, they do that cost-benefit analysis, as all businesses do, and sometimes it comes out on the, you know, <laughs> maybe it's more cost-effective if we don't do it. But you see, I was in a bit of a quandary <laughs> because yeah, I don't want stolen money. Stuff, you yeah. go, I don't want stolen money well, in my account. If you're doing good and trying to prevent online fraud, then you should be proactive about these things. And if somebody springs up and saying that I've discovered a fraudulent transaction, here's the details, then you should backtrack it. Um, well, that's what I expected. Yeah, yeah. And you know, but, the, and that's what you would expect, but sometimes they, they don't. And it is a bizarre thing, but... Mm. Because part of the reason as well is that I didn't really want stolen money in, in my bank account, but I was also reluctant to to uh, reverse a transaction myself because then I run the risk of having it reversed a second time by the bank and then I'll never get my money back. Yeah. So I just had to sit sit tight on this stolen money for, it's crazy. But anyway, that's my kind of brush, if you like, with internet fraud. The only brushes that I've had are the your typical email spam, your typical, your Nigerian emails, those sorts of things. Um, but I have been the on the receiving end uh Twice, in fact, just last week, in fact, uh, was the latest account of that thing currently going around New Zealand where you'll have uh, an Indian call center ring you up asking you if your computer is protected and asking you if you know who looks after your computer and all that sort of thing, trying to get you to sign up to their service and give them remote access to your computer and getting you to, you know, check your event log and all that sort of stuff. But doing it very social networking because they actually ring. So it's <laughs> an actual actually, phone call, isn't yes, it? Yes, it's an actual phone call and you actually talk to someone. Which sounds um, legit. Yeah, yeah, if you didn't already know about it. The first time was really hilarious because I had read the news article about this scam thing which was going around just a couple of days before I got the phone call. So I had a conversation with this person explaining to them that they weren't going to sell anything to me. <laughs> but it was still very hard to get rid of them. Yeah, now we spoke uh, about that a, a yeah, few episodes did. ago, didn't we? Because did that, that was the first time. Yeah, and the second time, my housemate answered the phone and he had a conversation that lasted 25 minutes. Ended up talking to the person who's there because he was just you know, having a laugh with them, going along with their stuff. And the person who he was talking to 
had no idea about Windows 7. And so they passed them on passed him on to their supervisor and their supervisor and and he eventually started having a conversation about all kinds of weird stuff. <laughs> the supervisor was just Which the same was, guy in a different accent, right? Well, no, no. The, the first person was a woman and oh, the okay. second person was a guy. It's a husband and wife team. Could very well be. I wasn't here, unfortunately, so I didn't get to hear the, the, the woman's voice because it was a woman who uh, rung me up as well, who rang up the first time. So it could have been the same person. <laughs> they just didn't notice that this telephone number had declined them. <laughs> the Your number must be on a list somewhere because I, you know, I, I've not had those calls. Well, I'm in the phone book. Oh, you think they get it from there? Yeah. Yeah, I guess they yeah. do actually. They'll be, they'll be getting it from the phone book. Yeah, and actually I'm not in the phone book and it's not because I choose not to be, but uh, it just never happened and we yeah. haven't chased it up. So, yeah. so maybe you're right. That's where they get them from. Yep, I would say that's probably where they get it from. But yeah, that that's as close as we get. And generally, when I get those things, I yeah, I, I will either ignore it, or in the case of one where it presents itself to my, you know, face to face on a silver platter, I'll I'll waste that person's time. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, they're trying to scam you, aren't they? You know, it's it's yeah. it's very they're easy to, to fall into the to, trap of thinking that trying to make me buy something I don't need exactly, <laughs> and give them access to my computer which they don't need. <laughs> so yeah, I'll, I'll waste their time Absolutely. having conversations about random things like the weather. <laughs> you can have a lot of fun with them, can't you? You can lead them down the garden path. You can, you can, and you know, why not? They're wasting your time, so. If they're going to waste your time. Make it fun, yeah. yeah exactly. Make it fun. And you know, next time, why don't you record, plan it out and record it and we'll put it, we'll include it on the Boise Tech podcast if you can if do that. If it ever happens again, I shall do that. Yeah. I will record them. <laughs> All right, good stuff. Now, Brett, uh, second story I want to talk about this week. Google is going to offer us an alternative image format to JPEG. It's designed to be a lot faster on the web and it's called WebP. Yeah. What do you think? Web P. Yeah. Well, a whole my first standard. impression, yeah, my first impression is they could have chosen a better name. Yeah, I thought the same actually. Web P doesn't doesn't have great connotations. I'm not sure who thought of it, but it's like, you know, it's going to the bathroom over the internet. <laughs> uh, or, you know, it's a web-based version of a an incredibly addictive destructive drug. Neither drastically appealing for the internet, <laughs> uh, but uh, a, a new format is is great. It's not the first; they're not the first person to try and take on JPEG. Microsoft took on JPEG ages ago with their JPEG XR, and I think Internet Explorer and Windows are the only places that natively support JPEG XR. Yeah, funny that. that. Then there was JPEG two thousand. But J- was JPEG 2000 the JPEG group as well, or was that different? Uh, I'm not sure. It was it was supposed to take on, you know, be better than, you know, once again, another improvement. Oh, actually, it was. JPEG. It was. No, no, it was. I, I remember it was the same group, uh, just an improvement on the on the original JPEG. Yeah, yeah. Well, once again, it hasn't taken off. PNG was supposed to solve web graphics ages ago as well. But P- and- PNG is everywhere. PNG is everywhere, but it's not as synonymous as JPEGs and GIFs. Uh, Agree, agree, but there's a lot of PNG out there. And in fact, I'll I'll tell you this, I I start doing everything in PNG now Mm. for the web, simply because it has the 
the browser support. It's 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 native yep. and also the desktop uh, yep, as well. It's got browser support. It does produce uh, a better image in certain circumstances. Not always. Doesn't always produce a better image, but it does support transparency way better. Well, that's the thing. Yeah. It's got a full 8-bit alpha channel. So you exactly. can actually have 256 different levels of transparency with, with PNG. Yeah, and uh, you, can't do that with, you can't do that with GIF. No. With and GIF, you can't do you, transparency at all with JPEG. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So this, uh, this WebP thing, look, I'm going to take a pessimistic view, Brett. I'm going to say, idealistically, I think this is fantastic. Good on you, Google. Mm. Realistically, I'm going to say, you know, keep trying. I mean, this is not going to work. Honestly, I don't think it will take off. And that's not I to think, say well, it's it's yeah. it's a bad technology. I just honestly don't think anything oh, can dislodge J- JPEG. Indeed, because, you know, JPEG XR, JPEG 2000, they weren't bad technology at all. They were improvements on JPEG, but they did not supplant JPEG as the default for lossy image format. And they've been around for a lot longer. They have. I, I honestly, they I don't like being pessimistic, but I really don't think that this is actually going to. It's got to have the. It's got to have the buy-in. It's got to have the development behind it. It's got to have all the applications supporting it, and it's got to be. Yeah, it's just got to become one of those ubiquitous standards. It's just everywhere. The problem being that with the internet, and it's. I, I, and I'm sure it's the reason that JPEG and GIF have, are still here. It's the internet has to be backwards compatible. Because if you look at the statistics of the browsers that people are using, far too many people on the internet are using outdated browsers and not upgrading them. You know, with all the pushes that the different web develop, you know, web browser manufacturers have been pushing out there to get people to upgrade there are still vast numbers using outdated web browsers are there though really yeah have a look at the stats come on you can google it <laughs> but you know the, 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 the thing that's nice about this web p technologically speaking what's well, that massive compression that they've got the massive file size yeah. reduction is that it's 40% better than 40% JPEG compression. 40% better than JPEG. Yeah. That's huge. 40% better than JPEG image size with the same quality. With the same quality, that's right. That's that's really, really impressive. But it has it its downside, is. though. It has yeah. its downside. It it's, has a quite a significant downside. Yeah, it's eight times longer to encode when you're creating them and twice yep. as long as JPEG to, to, de- to decode. In other words, to display on the screen. Yep. So it's... So it has its downsides. If you have those giant high-res JPEGs, if it takes twice as long, you know, it, it, it takes noticeable seconds to render on your computer screen in its native JPEG format, and it's going to take twice as long to render. <laughs> yeah, but the, what, I think what you're talking about, though, is, is the download time, isn't it? I mean, well, the, the way to, to test the render well, yeah, time is simply to... L- it will be load. twice the, you know, it will have a significant impact in those situations where you already have something that's noticeable. If you've got a slow computer and you and you open up, say, from your desktop, you know, from your file system, a JPEG and it takes a while to display, certainly, absolutely, the, the, uh, the WebP will be twice as long still. Mm. 
Yeah, I, I, I think they're onto a, a good thing. It's just I, I don't think, think it will take off. It just won't take off. Uh, yeah, sometimes there are some, some standards and some things which just seem to be ingrained and <laughs> they're like the immovable object. <laughs> you just cannot get rid of them. That's right. And but, you know, look, I'll say this. Good on them for trying because if no one tries, oh, yeah. you don't get anywhere. So. Oh, if no one tries, they're not the first, you know. <laughs> it's, it's like normally in these sorts of things, I always say, you know, if Google put their weight behind it, they can move They can move things. Yeah, I've heard you say that. But but every now and then you you, you have something which somebody else who has weight has put their weight behind something else to try and move it and have failed. And that makes you take a step back going, okay, maybe this is maybe this is a thing that no matter how big you are, you're just not, for whatever reason, going to be able to move it. Because as I said, you know, JPEG XR was Microsoft. And you, you can't get much bigger than that, really. Yeah, for, <laughs> yeah exactly. It's especially at the height of their... At the, at the, the height, browser, uh, yeah. what do you call it, browser market share. Yeah, at the height of their browser market share, they came out with JPEG XR. And yeah, while Internet Explorer supports it and Windows supports it natively, you'll be hard-pressed to find other things which support JPEG XR. And the other thing that they've got to get through for WebP is Photoshop has got to support it natively. All of the other oh, inbuilt yeah. things have got yeah. to support it natively. Microsoft Paint has got to support it natively. Well, who uses paint? I mean, really? Quite a lot of people do, in fact. <laughs> well, they just wouldn't admit to it. No, no I, know, I know what you're saying. I mean, yeah. It, it's got to be supported yeah, in, it, it, every right, in the every major tools. and every minor image editing and image production software. Well, good luck to, good luck to them. I mean, because if it does work out, it'll be a good thing. It will indeed. And with it being natively part of the whole WebM project, you know, the, the audio video thing that we, we, you know, harped on about for a bit, or I harped on about and, and you discussed rationally, with browsers, if browsers support that, go on board with WebM, then WebP is part of that. So they will become WebP compatible. They will support WebP. Yeah, I think I think you're right. They're, uh, not Microsoft. And they have Google been are, are looking at, at a sort of a multi-pronged attack, aren't they? Yeah, this yeah. It's all part of a bigger picture. Excuse it's all part of a bigger picture. <laughs> they have thought about how it's going to affect developers because no developer out there who's already got a you know an image intensive site is one is going to want to have to go through and convert all of those JPEGs to WebPs. They've really got to come up with a better name. <laughs> it doesn't roll off the tongue as as well as JPEG or even GIF. They're both just they just roll off. WebP. No, not really. What makes me laugh are the people that call a GIF a GIF. A GIF? Yeah. No, GIF is with a J and oh, it's a well, brand name of a, you know, a, a cleaning, a cleaning product. product here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's what a GIF is. It's a, so I can't call it a GIF, so I have to call it a GIF. Well, I guess if, if you come from a place that doesn't have GIF, <laughs> cleaning product, <laughs> and you say other things with a G as a J, then I guess. Well, actually, if, if, we, want to get, if we want to get linguistic about this, normally well, when, when an I follows a G, it's a soft G and GIF wouldn't be correct. Yeah, yeah. But not always, because there's words like gill. Exactly. But anyway, uh, this is not a, a linguistic show. Facebook. Now, they've introduced a new feature, or they've revamped a feature, Groups. 
uh, so you can group people and, and mm-hmm. create groups and, and put people in those groups. The thing is, though, Brett, they've actually implemented it in a way that if I create, if I'm a Facebook user and I create a group, I can put you in their group, and you you have to opt out. You can't just. It's not an opt-in system. It's not. I can force you and, into a group. Oh, yeah, it's it's quite. What are they thinking? It's interesting, but ridiculous. <laughs> As a lot of things that Facebook have done in the past have been interesting, but ridiculous. What their take on it is is well, basically they they've overhauled the, the group system and they've actually implemented some good privacy settings for it. So there's some so so it's a lot easier to control the privacy, the sharing of 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 information and those sorts of things. But what they've done in here is anybody can create a group and you can then if you have friends you can add those friends directly to the group so you can make them join the group without their consent without their permission it is a completely opt out situation and their thinking is that if they're your friends why wouldn't you let them you know, you would trust them to be, you know, interested. Put you into sensible groups. Yeah, put you into sensible groups, you know, to create a sensible group and to add you to that sensible group. They haven't really thought it through. They've got their idea of how people use Facebook. Obviously, that whoever you are, you have 15,000 friends. You trust all of those friends equally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. That's That's not what anybody has ever claimed and all of these privacy issues have come around about the the need to have fine control over your permissions over your privacy over who you give access to they don't see that in society there are many different tiers of friends they may all be called friends because they've termed you know every person who's linked to you as a friend but there are many different tiers, and so lots, lots of people create groups within their friends lists, and they will add people to different groups, and then they will change permissions to different aspects of their life, different aspects of their profile, different aspects of the things they want to share to those groups of friends. It's like, I might only want my intimate friends, my close group, to be able to see pictures of me or to be able to tag me in pictures. I only want, you know, I want the, the, the next level of friends to be able to see what I'm talking about, that sort of stuff. And I want the outer level of friends to just have more peripheral information about me, some contact details, that sort of stuff, for those sort of acquaintances. And then there's the general public who I don't want to have any information about me. So there are these tiers and what they've done with this groups feature is they made anybody, they consider anybody that you've added to your friends list to be a friend and to be able to add you to these different things. They've built in better privacy features, yes, but then they've added this one thing which just is ridiculous. You should be able to find, you know, you should have to first opt in to allow people to add you to groups. I should have to tick an option which should be off by default to say, yes, I would like my friends to be able to add me to groups, but I would like this tier of my friends, this group of friends only, to be able to add me to groups. And all of the other ones who are friends of mine, I don't want them to be able to add me to groups because they're not my close 
friends. They're just my peripheral friends or my friends of friends. Facebook is getting a lot of bad press at the moment. They, well, they keep sticking their foot in it. They do. They? they do, don't they? They really just don't think it through. They don't see that people use Facebook in a way different to what they think people should use Facebook. By. I need to do some usability research or something like that. Not usability, just user research. Research how people are actually using Facebook. That would help. Now, Brett, I want to move on to the next story. We talked about, I think, a couple of episodes ago about a, a Google TV operating system. Well, the first set-top box with that has come out, and it's made by Logitech. So it will look very pretty. It will look very stylish. Yeah, you question its use, don't you? Yeah, I, I still question. Why would you want Android why? on your TV is, is what you're saying. Uh, yeah, I still question why. Why do I need another set-top box? It's like supposed to be a, a unifier. And, and all things in one, which is what Apple TV was trying to do. But it's, yeah, it's just, why? Okay, I'll tell With you what. Maybe, maybe it's us, Brett. Maybe it's us. Let's invite our listeners. You tell us why you think an Android operating system on your on your TV is a good idea. Leave your comments at boysoftech.com. That's where you can do that. Or send us an email. Brett, a vending machine in Japan. Now, they, they, you know, in Japan, there's so many vending machines. There's one for every 22 people. And you can get anything. I know. In a vending machine. Buy, I know. Absolutely. You can buy a new shirt. You spill something on your shirt and you go, oh, crap, I've got a meeting. I've got to get to. You can buy a new, <laughs> new only shirt. In, only a in Japan. Machine. Well, this one I want to talk about is one that has kind of a, it's got a camera and it scans you, looks at you does a bit of face recognition and, and applies a, f- a few rules and heuristics. And based on what it sees, it'll offer you a drink. It, I mean, it's a drinks vending machine. It'll choose a drink for you personally. So uh, it suggests, it makes suggestions based on... What you look like. Yeah, you're a Coke kind of a guy. Stereotypes. Have a Coke. Yeah, basically. stereotype. Yeah. What do you think? I think it's neat. Because, <laughs> you know, it is a vending machine that has 35 different types of drink that it can supply you with. And uh, you're going to want to stand there looking through 35 different ones and ponder what it is that you've got a, you know, got a craving for. Or would you like it to be able to have a look at you and go, hmm, you know what? You're a girl of about this age. Your gender and age bracket generally have one of these drinks and then have a much smaller selection to make. <laughs> I think it's pretty neat. I think it's I think nifty. It's cool. I, I don't think it's got any... I, I don't know how, how well it will get anything right. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> face recognition for a start is, is quite a tricky thing. When you're talking individual identification face recognition, then yeah, that's, that's pretty difficult. But just being able to tell that thing as a face, that, that's pretty easy, really. Yeah, but They're it's, easy it's to looking at gender. Well. Gender is hard to tell for computers. It's very hard gender for... Gender is a lot harder to it is hard. tell. But it's still, there are still a lot of distinctive things, differences between gender's faces and this being in japan i would say it is probably well keyed to an asian face and there's some quite significant differences between gender faces but yeah i'm wondering more what it would take if you you stick other people's faces in front of it or if you just you know put a put a mask well now that would be cool put put the scream mask on <laughs> It'll probably think, ah, you are a small child trick-or-treating. You want Coke. <laughs> yeah, probably. 
It'd be fun to no, try I think, it's, I think it's really neat. I think it's really neat. You just hope nobody's abusing it. I'd like one in our workplace. Do you think we could get one? What about one in the studio right here? Yeah. That would be cool. It would be cool. The vending machine would always be watching you. And the people who controlled the vending machine would always be watching you. Yeah, can they see? Now, can they see you? Yeah. Ah, well, who, you know, who, who else you can see through that vending? You wow. know, we're getting all 1984 here. Getting my, <laughs> yeah. I'm putting on my tinfoil hat. Who else has access to be able to see out of that camera? Who else could get access to see out of that camera? What I thought was the funny, you know, We'll just segue slightly uh, back to the actual story. <laughs> oh, why do that now? <laughs> well, it, well, it kind of matches with the, the whole 1984 thing. When there's nobody standing in front of it, and it's just there's just people walking past it, and it's, the camera's just seeing people walking past it, because it's not your old school sort of display where it's actually got, you know, fake bottles or, or the labels or buttons. It's a big touch screen. The picture will show a blank screen with some eyes staring out, looking at people walking past. <laughs> how, how gimmicky is that? <laughs> it's very well, rather disconcerting. It's like, well, yeah, it's also disconcerting in that 1984 thing is the vending machine is watching it's you. watching your every move. Big Brother is a vending machine and it wants to sell you drinks. <laughs> <laughs> Buy this. But yeah, it's, it's who else is looking at that thing? Because I saw an article on, you know, on a similar vein of these things that you think are ubiquitous or are going to be controlled in one way, which then end up getting misused. You know, the scanners, the airport scanners, which they're bringing into, uh, you know, American airports and I think airports in, in uh, the UK as well, the, the ones where they're full body scanners and they can see through your clothes and see, you know, yeah, those ones. basically all of you underneath. And there've been concerns about the privacy of that, the images, are they being captured, who gets to see them, are they, you know, who could be misusing them, um, what sort of checks are being done on the people who run those things, because, you know, children also go through these things, so there are tons of stuff, and the, the images themselves run into a whole slew of legal problems when you start thinking about the fact that children would be going through these scanners as well. And, you know, it's all about, oh, no, it's like the, the machine is here and the, the, the people looking at the pictures are, are way further away and they're security screened and they're responsible and nobody would ever abuse this sort of stuff. Well, we've already had somebody in, what was it, the United States who was fired, either fired or disciplined. I think it was, uh, I don't know. Can't remember. Uh, one of those because he misused it. He was um, making fun of one of the other people who was going through it. So you question, I guess, uh, the same thing about this vending machine. But really, it's in a public place. What? What? What are you going to? So well, it's, it's, exactly. not, it's not a full it's, body it's scanner. Not, yeah, well, it's as not far a full as we body know. Scanner, but once again, it is those those things which are provided for one purpose. And they get hijacked. They get hijacked, yeah, don't they? They're hijacked and used for something they're not, or they really aren't the good controls. So, yeah. <laughs> but other than that, I, I, yeah, as you said, it's in a public place and, and anything that happens in a public place is, is public. And I wouldn't want to see anything else prevent that. And it's a neat piece of technology. And it's just one of the many, you know, it just adds to the number of cameras that you walk past in a day. I wonder if it sells more than any other vending machine. Well, right now it'd have that massive gimmick factor, wouldn't it? Well, yeah, that's true. But I think it probably would because it would allow you to quickly get to the drink you want. So if you're indecisive, go for this machine. So if you're a non-gamer, remember we talked about this, 
uh, last episode about gamers having faster reactions and being mm. able to make decisions quicker than non-gamers. So if you're a non-gamer, use one of these things if you're in Japan. Anyway, Brett, that's it for the international section. That was the last story in this section. I want to take a quick musical interlude, and after the break, we will come back uh, with a couple of guests to talk about some interesting stories of what's happening here in New Zealand to do with research down in Antarctica. So stick around. Don't go away. Welcome back to the second part of the show where we feature New Zealand stories. And joining us now is Craig Stevens from NIWA, which is the National Institute of Water and Atmospheric Research. Welcome to the show, Craig. Uh, g'day. Now, Craig, I have to ask you, uh, NIWA, National Institute of Water and Atmospheric Research, where's the R in, at the end of NIWA? Oh, <laughs> well, they, they used to use that, actually, so it used to be NIWAR. NIWAR, ah, oh, now I can so see they, why, yeah. They, Dropped it to give it a bit more of a sound. Um, yeah. And the whole war so, thing as well. So I'm, I'm based in Wellington and uh, I'm a physical oceanographer or a marine physicist. And so, so my area of research is targets how the ocean mixes and transports, you know, energy and material. And so, so the sorts of topics I work on are things like the, the under ice polar boundary layers that we're talking about now. But... Um, I also get involved in a couple of other uh, projects, if you like. So, so one is extracting electricity from from ocean flows, so from tides and waves. And also, I do a bit of work looking at how uh, biology behaves in in ocean in real ocean flows. So, oceans that are turbulent or stratified or have waves. I look at how um, biology, you know, it might be aquaculture, it might be sort of phytoplankton. So a range of topics there. Certainly the uh, uh, generation of electricity through through waves is something that, I, I don't know, I'm surprised we, we're not doing more of already. Well, uh, worldwide, there's a, there's a reasonable amount of research. It's difficult to do and it's expensive. And so there are cheaper options out there if you don't take into account the sort of the effect of injecting CO2 into the atmosphere, there are cheaper options out there. And so so it's a challenge getting the money together to get these things in and working, both for wave and tidal energy extraction. What a fantastic job getting out and about in the ocean. Sure beats a desk job. Now, I want to also welcome Andrew Hamilton from University of British Columbia in Canada. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Hello, thanks for having me on. It's our pleasure to have you on the show. Now, Andrew, what's your role at, uh, at, university, at UBC? I'm actually a PhD candidate in uh, uh, the Environmental Fluid Mechanics Lab. Um, so what I do is actually similar to Craig. I study uh, ocean and lake physics, but we also have an autonomous underwater vehicle in our lab that allows us to do research in areas that are uh, otherwise hard to get to with traditional uh, oceanographic instruments. Well, just on that, in fact, we've we've got you on the show. We've got both of you on the show because... Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this coming weekend you're about to embark on a journey to Antarctica. Is that right? Tell us, yeah. what, tell us what you'll be doing down there. Well, we, we actually leave next uh, Monday for Antarctica, and uh, this is a, a actually a project that Craig has been involved in led for a few years now. Um, our UBC team is a recent addition, but our, our role is to bring down our AUV, our autonomous underwater vehicle, to help look at 
how the ocean physics works on a spatial scale underneath the ice rather than just have point samples we'll be able to sort of sample over a larger area under the ice and craig can probably talk more to the uh, the larger scope of the project yeah the, well the, the cool thing about where we're working is we're working right alongside for antarctica what's quite a small glacier so there's a, about a 15 kilometer long glacier that runs out and floats out over mcmurdo sound so it's a floating glacier and we're using it as a proxy for an ice shelf. And so we're looking at the ocean mixing that goes on around the front of this ice shelf proxy. Because if as the ocean warms, we need to know how much of that warming will get under these shelves and how that will accelerate or not the disintegration of the ice shelves. So this one is not, uh, it's not attached or, or is it? Okay, so, so it's, it's not like an iceberg, is it? No, no. What it does is it perhaps every 30 or 40 years, the, the end five or so kilometers uh, breaks off and that becomes an iceberg. But no, it's definitely attached. And it, it actually um, uh, rolls off the side of Mount Erebus. Oh, okay, um, so, right. Yeah. And so it's quite amazing. So from, from space, from satellite imagery, you know, it sticks out like a very, very large thumb. But uh, when you're sitting right next to it, because obviously most of it's underwater and there's a big snowbank along, along it, it's actually quite difficult to see. Uh, you need quite a trained eye to spot it uh, until you sort of drive into it. <laughs> so, yeah. so there is actually a time when, when it is cut off and is, for all intents and purposes, a floating iceberg at that time. Well, well no, what, what happens is it, it's floating out over McMurdo Sound and getting longer and longer with time. And it basically sticks its nose out past some islands. And when that happens, it exposes the, the tip to more waves and more current. So just the tip snaps off. Um, oh, okay. Uh, I see. Right. Right. And so, but, but you know, occasionally, they're, they're earlier this year, a much bigger, so perhaps 10 times the scale uh, equivalent got broken off entirely by another iceberg. And so, you know, this has basically... I don't know, um, uh, what would you say, like the, the Wellington regional sort of area floating around it, that sort of area of ice, basically over to the wire wrapper, but as a, as a sort of big berg. Wow, that, that's some serious chunk of ice. <laughs> that is some serious ice. Oh, some, so some of these things you wouldn't get through Cook Strait. No, but you can make a lot of rum and cokes with them. Uh, well, you, it's funny you say that, but uh, that's that's one trick that you can do because there's quite often uh, oxygen trapped in some of these bergs. And so if you chip off bits and put it in a drink, it does um, make for some snap and crackle. Oh, nice. There we go. So now I, I was going to ask you too, just out of curiosity, how much of that ice is salt water and how much is fresh water? Well, the iceberg itself we're looking at is actually runs off the land. So that's not formed from seawater. And so if there's any salt at all in that, that will be sort of windblown stuff from the sea ice. Right, but where and it meets so, the water, it must mix and freeze seawater, correct? Yeah, but so, so when seawater freezes, it actually squeezes out the salt. And so, so there's a whole discipline uh, or sub-discipline, I'm sure, looking at the way that salt gets squeezed out of the ice as it forms. So, so frozen seawater 
effectively becomes drinkable after a couple of years once all of the salt has been squeezed out. Well, there's a tip. If you're, if you're lost in the ocean, you can't drink the ocean, but you might be able to head south and, and drink some of that. Well, I mean, that's what we do in our field camps is we will look for um, multi-year sea ice and chip off blocks of that and melt that rather than the windblown snow, which will have a lot more salt in it. Right, but you, you wouldn't want to dig too deep there, would you? Because you'd be drinking something thousands of years old. <laughs> well, yeah, so, so this is out in the sea ice, so this would only be three or four metres thick, and this is all quite new. We tend to, to stay away from the glaciers themselves. Oh, those, okay. Um, there, there are other groups that are, are very much into that particular thing, but not so much drinking it, but looking at the the um, properties of the air bubbles and stuff like that, basically profiling past climates. Yeah, there's some interesting graphs actually out there that you can look at the concentration of CO2 and, and the, the predicted temperature as well at the time. Well, I mean, they're hugely influential for, they're some of the, the few reasonable bits of evidence that we have floating around that we can put some sort of quantitative assessment on for past climates. So, so they're very important, some of those ice cores. You've got this submarine, this little small submarine, about a, what, a two-meter thing? It's, it's called the UBC Gavia, and Gavia is actually uh, the um, genus name for the common loon, which up in Canada and northern parts of, of the world is, uh, is an aquatic bird uh, that, that's known as, as quite a diver. And so the the vehicle is named after that bird. Oh, that's how it got its name, right? So you've got one of the, you've got that, and what are you? How are you going to use that? So it's an autonomous vehicle, which means it goes down under the water and dives by itself. It doesn't have a, a tether attached to it. So what we have to do is we pre-program it on the surface to uh, give it a, a mission plan. So we sort of design out where it's going to go, what depth it's going to be at, and and what sensors are going to be activated. And then uh, we drop it in the water and it'll uh, propel itself off like a little torpedo, except a a scientific torpedo uh, collecting reams of data as it goes. And if all goes well, it returns back to the ice hole and we collect all that data. So when you're programming it, that's done wirelessly, right? Yeah, that's right. We have uh, software on our computers, uh, mission planning software. And then once we have the mission completely uh, designed, then we can upload it wirelessly to the vehicle. That's fantastic. In fact, I was reading a little bit about this the submarine and I thought, how cool would that be to, to just have one of these just because you can, just to play with it? <laughs> <laughs> Set it out into the harbour. Yeah, that would be so cool. So it's got a lot of sensors on it. I was I was reading. Can you tell us about what, what sort of things that can detect and, and see and measure. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's got a whole plethora of sensors on it and uh, sort of starting at the front of, front of the vehicle and working back. At the very nose of the vehicle, there's a, a digital camera, high-resolution high digital camera that can uh, snap images of the either the seafloor floor bottom if it's close enough or uh, we can eat, actually even fly the vehicle inverted so it can shoot images upwards looking at the bottom of the sea ice. Um, oh, wow. Our, our main instrument uh, for ocean physics is called a CTD. And that measures conductivity and temperature and depth of the uh, seawater. And from that, we can deduce a lot of uh, physical properties that influence how the water behaves. 
Um, then moving further back, we have uh, an ADCP, uh, both upward and downward looking ADCP, which are current meters. So they measure the, uh, the Doppler effect, basically, as the vehicle moves through the water. It will uh, send pulses, pulses of sound out and the reflection of those sound off uh, moving particles in the water. Uh, we can calculate the the velocity of how water is moving around the vehicle. Right. So can I just I was can I just ask you about that specifically? It, it correct me if I'm wrong, but you'd be measuring the relative speed of the vessel to the water, but not necessarily to the you know the land underneath. Is that right? So if there's so a, if there's a strong current, a fast current, I don't know if you get those, but you wouldn't be able uh, to measure that, would you? Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. So um, we have two um, current meters on it, and actually, when we're flying close to the sea bottom, the bottom-looking one is actually uh, reading the bottom of the ocean bed to to measure the uh, the velocity of the vehicle as it moves over ground. Right. So kind of like an optical mouse. Yeah. That, that, yep. Very similar. Um, okay. And then from the upward-looking one. Um, then we can also measure the water column movement. So if there's a current flowing, we can measure that and and subtract out the motion of the vehicle from uh, the data that, that's uh, obtained by the, the bottom tracking uh, uh, meter. Um, when we're in blue water, which means in the water column away from any service that it can bounce a uh, uh, the velocity measuring meter off, um, then it becomes a bit more difficult and we have to subtract out the motion of the vehicle just based on the, the internal navigation system of the vehicle and um, its own dead reckoning calculation of how fast it's moving and the orientation that it's moving at. Um, so we can still subtract out ocean currents from that, uh, but become, it's a little bit more tricky. Also, we've got a, uh, a side scan sonar on our uh, vehicle, which is uh, basically an acoustic mapping system. So much like a fish finder works, it'll send uh, acoustic beams off either side of the vehicle and, and create an acoustic map of the, the seabed. And again, if we turn the vehicle upside down and fly it inverted, we can get the same sort of topographic map of the underside of the sea ice. Additionally, on the vehicle, there's also a, a little biological fluorescence meter, which can measure uh, the turbidity of the water or basically how clear it is. So if there's either lots of sediment in the water or lots of uh, phytoplankton and algae growing, um, we can measure the levels of that and also measure the, the productivity of the phytoplankton that are growing in that water. And those are basically uh, the main instruments that we use uh, on the vehicle. And the whole thing is something like less than 50 kilos, is that right? Yeah, that's right. It uh, depends what configuration it's in. It's a modular vehicle, so we can sort of plug and play different uh, parts to it. But in its normal configuration that we use, it's about 55 kilograms. Sounds like a really well-engineered device. Was that something that, uh, that you people developed at UBC? No, it's actually a, a vehicle designed by a company in Iceland, a company called Teledyne Gavia. So they developed it. It was originally developed uh, as a partnership with the University of Iceland, and then this uh, group broke away and started manufacturing the vehicles on their own. And it's really quite a remarkable piece of engineering. So whilst it's underwater, you you can't communicate with it, and it doesn't really know accurately where it is other than from what it's calculated as, as it's moved along, right? 
It is. It has a. So what happens is when it's at the surface, it has a communications tower that sticks up above the water, and in that communications tower is a GPS unit. So it can it gets a GPS uh, fix of its location. But you're right. Once it dives under the water, it's just using a, a dead reckoning calculation of where it is. But we can supplement its navigation system uh, using what's called a, a long baseline um, acoustic. Uh, telemetry method, which basically means that we stick two two other acoustic beacons in the water, which we we know their fixed position of, and then as the vehicle flies or dives through the water, it can triangulate its position um, by acoustically interrogating each one of those beacons. Right? Can it, can you also program it to resurface periodically when it surfaced? Obviously, using the GPS to work out where it's got to, and if it's out from what it thinks it was, can it? kind of proportionally overwrite, you know, uh, some of the location data that it was determining whilst it was underwater? Yeah, the, uh, absolutely. As, um, as time progresses underwater, the, the error of its known position will accumulate. And so often what we do in open water missions is we program in for the vehicle to come to the service and get a GPS fix to sort of reset its navigation location. And then it'll dive down again and continue on the mission. Of course, under ice, that's a bit more difficult to do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you need a little power drill or something on the top. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so on this mission, you hope to, to achieve what? You hope to determine what? Well, we're going to be looking at um, the the scalar parameters, so temperature and uh, salinity of the ocean, as well as the flow uh, currents in the ocean. So we'll use the vehicle to get a spatial idea of variations of all these parameters in the water column, because under ice measurements are are difficult to do uh, at the best of times, and usually we can only do sort of one spot at a time. Or, or over time. So we put a mooring in from the ice and get measurements over time at that one location. Whereas with this vehicle, we're, we're able to get uh, measurements over a large spatial area, which under ice is quite unique. You know what you should do with that is take it to to Scotland and really try and debunk the whole Loch Ness Monster thing once, <laughs> once and for all. Could, could you do that? Do you think? Um, yeah, given enough time, we could uh, we could map the entire bottom of Loch Ness and, and, and find Nessie. Yeah, you might find a hidden cave or something where Nessie <laughs> hides when, when the other, you know, uh, boats and subs are, are out looking for her. It, it, it's interesting you bring out that question because my previous uh, supervisor had a theory that uh, Loch Ness is actually an internal wave or a, a, a soliton that comes up to the surface of uh, the lake and... and gives the apparition of a monster where it's actually just a wave that's um, broaching the surface. And all the while, I just thought it was people, you know, scratching the the negatives on the camera. (laughs) There might be more to it than that. (laughs) The thing that piqued my interest particularly about that sub was its inner workings. There's very few details about those sorts of parts. You've got um, all of the different sensors that plug into it, but what what is running it inside there? Oh, that's a that's an in-depth question that we'll we'll need another expert to really answer that one. Um, <laughs> that's another way of saying it's a Commodore sixty four, but he didn't want to say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's probably you know first generation iPhone. <laughs> 
Uh, you're you're really not too far from the truth. We, um, it, it's got a, a couple normal sort of laptop computer hard drives in it and uh, a few stacks of uh, laptop batteries, uh, kind of souped up batteries. But otherwise, it, it's it's fairly off the shelf hardware. It's just they've all, the, the way the company has connected it all together and programmed it is uh, um, an art, I think. Well, so so as a non-submarine or AUV expert, what fascinates me about these things is the the control software. I mean, these things have to make decisions, and especially when they're environments like this where they're under ice, you know, they they have to sort of make decisions based on if their engine stops or if they strike an object. So the mission planning and the sort of choices that are made on the fly. Um, it's a real sort of art, uh, and it's vitally important because one of the things that's hard to get across in this line of work is basically the anxiety you have when you're putting this incredibly expensive equipment in the water that, you know, not only is it expensive, but it also has your data um, yeah. either on board or about to collect. And so there's a lot at stake. Um, <laughs> So, so just just the the care and creativity that goes into making the, the control software work it, it always inspires me. Is it is it crash proof? Like, if you deliberately or maybe not so deliberately programmed it to go straight into, uh, I don't know, um, the ice, the ice or something, would would it refuse to do that and say, "Hey, look, I can sense there's a hard object up ahead of me. I'm not going to do that." Um, I, w- I would love to tell you it's crash proof, but um, historically we have crashed it many times. It, it does have an <laughs> obstacle avoidance sonar right at the front of the vehicle. So it, it has the ability to sense objects in its path. And what it'll do then is uh, do an emergency brake where it, it fires the propeller in reverse. It'll stop and then uh, float up because the, the vehicle itself is uh, just slightly positively buoyant. So it'll float up and then restart the propeller once it's uh, cleared that obstacle. All right. So uh, it will attempt to. It'll do its best to avoid a collision. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it, it gets a, a bit more difficult when you're under ice, though, because the vehicle is positively buoyant. Uh, the obstacle <laughs> the hit is above it, so it can't go up any further to clear that obstacle. Yeah. And that would be the place you did not want to get it lost. So this coming weekend, you'll be heading off and your the mission is how long this time? Oh, we'll be down there for about three and a half weeks. So, so it takes us four or five days to, to get our sort of gear all set up and to to really basically to drill a lot of holes and to set up our camp. We'll be about um, 15 or 20 kilometres from Scott Base, uh, quite close to where Scott's second sort of, sort of mission to the pole uh, started, so Cape Evans. Uh, we'll be close by there and we'll be in a container camp. So we'll be um, living out on the ice, but in relatively cosy conditions. But we'll we'll have um, we'll spend a couple of days just drilling holes. And what do you eat? What sort of food do you take with you? We have a full kitchen there, so um, we have we do take a bread maker. Um, but but oh, well, okay. So the bread is the best thing. The worst thing ever was the time we we mucked up with our food supplies, and so we had. Two weeks of corned beef and hash browns. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so yeah, I, I had 
since then. <laughs> so from my perspective as, as a traditional oceanographer, all our stuff, as, as Andrew said, um, it's basically vertical. You know, we'll drill a hole and we'll lower an instrument or we'll drop an instrument down. And we can do that often in time. But who knows what's going on 100 metres to the west or whatever. And so normally that's not a problem because the ocean is very wide, if you understand. And, and so sort of processes are sort of squeezed flat. They're like pancakes. But, but when you're sitting right next to this glacier, it's like you're sticking a big obstacle out into all this flow. So suddenly the horizontal processes become very important. And so to be able to drive these instruments around a map in the horizontal is incredibly valuable. valuable yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and then again, to actually be able to sort of catch the extremes, because it, it's, it's often the extremes that make the big difference in the ocean. So it's, it's the average situation is, is all very well, but occasionally something will happen that's maybe a thousand times stronger than the average and that's where often lots of the mixing or the energy transfer happens. So the more you drive around, the more likely you are to catch those those little uh, ephemera. I get the impression that uh, Antarctica isn't really as lonely as one might think. There's quite a lot going on down there. Well, uh, we work in McMurdo Sound, so I think what you'll find is that there are little uh, pockets, pockets yeah, of, activity. Of, of perhaps suburbia or something <laughs> like that. There will actually be a camp of about nine of us out there. Uh, and then, you know, in the distance, we can actually see another camp that's an American group studying, uh, I think, seals. But then if you look in the other direction, you know, it's New Zealand is the, is the next bunch oh, of people. Oh, wow. Okay. That's a long way. Uh, yeah. The program was originally funded by the Marsden Fund, um, a Royal Society-administered fund that's actually for sort of investigator-driven ideas so they don't actually have to be useful and it's more about sort of developing skills and new paths for science and so that's fine and and we certainly got some ideas there but but it, it quickly sort of links in with with some quite key aspects of climate science where where you know climate science happens on a global scale um, you know you're always thinking about what the world is going to be like in a hundred years and you're thinking about it at, at the global level but processes that affect that can sometimes be you know meters across uh, and so the challenge for us is to be doing all this high-tech tiny scale stuff but it's actually a globally relevant problem and so so i think that's that's one of the overarching ideas that i'd like to get across so the data that you'll be collecting from this mission will be probably used by a lot of different people in uh, doing different studies, things like climate change, for example? Well, well, not the data exactly. What The way we believe it will work is we'll use these data that we collect on this and look at how the basic processes interact. And what we're trying to come up with is, is effectively coefficients or variations in coefficients that then go into the big climate models. Oh, okay, so, right. So, so we're, we're trying to sort of tease out one of the little sort of jigsaw pieces that goes in a climate model rather than someone looking at our results and saying, oh, well, that means in 100 years it's going to be like this. It, ours is all about sort of the jigsaw. So your research will be going to improve the climate models that are used 
Oh, sure, absolutely. In the first instance, it's it's about understanding the sort of how the natural world works. But then a natural follow-on from that is is you. The hope is that you should be able to use that to improve global climate models, and and these models can always be improved, if only by being able to run them at smaller resolution, finer scale, or faster time steps. But we're always trying to improve the way we represent how things work. Andrew, is this going to be of any particular interest to you in terms of how things are different in the South Pole uh, to the North Pole? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, the The Arctic and the Antarctic are sim- similar with regards to their sort of temperature and ex- extreme nature um, of the environment. But otherwise, there's many, many differences. The Arctic, for example, is is a large ice-covered ocean um, surrounded by land, whereas the Antarctic is a great big landmass covered in ice surrounded by ocean. So, and those differences influence the way that the ocean, uh, in, in, they influence the properties of the ocean there, which in turn affects how ice behaves and, and the physics at play. So, so for me personally, it's a wonderful opportunity to get a sense of what how the other half lives, so to speak, and get a better understanding of a, a broader range of ocean physics at, in, at both poles. Yeah. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, ice that's melting off land, or from, you know, as in from land, is far more significant in terms of how it affects the environment than floating ice because floating ice once melted really has makes no difference to the level of the the sea but ice coming off land can do is is that right yeah so so that's that's the i guess the key picture here for why we look at ice shelves and their disappearance or collapse it's not so much about the change in sea level rise due to that specifically but then basically the, the argument goes that you're opening the door to the ice sheet that lies on the land, and so that will then accelerate and slide off into the ocean, and so you're right. Accelerate. That's the concern. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And so there, there's a great deal of uncertainty about, you know, the extreme possibilities for sea level rise. So I don't know if you can answer this, but if all the ice in the world, well, as in, well, how do you define that? But you know, if, if all the ice large masses of ice in the world, we're talking north and south pole, polar areas, melted. How much of a difference would that make to, to sea levels? Any estimate on that, or, or is that just too hard to say? Um, you know, thinking yeah, of Greenland yeah. as well, Greenland, yeah, Arctic yeah. ice, Antarctic ice. The, the number that pops in my head, and maybe Craig can correct me, is if all of Antarctica, all the ice sheets melted, that would be about um, 80 metres of sea level rise. 80 metres? Yeah. Wow. Craig, would you... So, so you sort of have to be careful here, um, but, but the, the general sort of expectations with present knowledge, without losing ice sheets, is we're looking at sea level rises over the next 100 years of the order of 50 to 80 centimetres, but with the removal of substantial components in the sort of ice shelf system, that that might double or triple. 
yeah. So I, yeah, I, I realise that you know the question I posed is is not realistic in any time oh, frame soon. But I was just thinking hypothetically, what you know, how much ice is there out there? Uh, you know, so. But you're, what you're saying now is, is realistically, how much could melt in the next X number of years? Yeah. Uh, looking yeah. forward, there'll be a significant but not drastic change. Is, is that fair to say? Oh, I think. Uh, if you're in a low-lying Pacific island, yeah, even those low levels of sea level rise are drastic. Mm, well, the, to value springs to mind. <laughs> so you know, it only needs it only needs the the best case scenario, and they're still in trouble. Right. Okay. Wow. And those, those estimates are when you sort of hear the the 40 or 50 centimeters uh, worldwide. That's an average, and and from some uh, studies that I've heard about over the last year, what's what's expected to happen is actually not just an average uniform sea level rise, but it will be non-uniform. So some areas will actually have slightly more and some areas will have less. So depending on where you are, you might uh, be really in for a change. But how can, that, how can that be? Wouldn't gravity kind of all, you know, level that off? I mean, I, um, can, can well, it be different? It's so the Earth is not static, so the Earth is spinning, and there are fairly consistent wind structures, and then there are tides. So, so it's often it's not so it's often sea level rise plus tides plus storms. Oh, plus so all those effects, right? Gotcha. They give you the sort of the really massive destructive events, and so so everything sort of wraps in together to conspire against any anywhere that's low lying. <laughs> any room for two budding uh, young enthusiasts to join you down there? Help you out a bit? Maybe we could do the cooking or something. I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> Brent, you can do hash browns. I'll I'll cook up the corn the corn beef. <laughs> yes, I wouldn't eat your corn beef, Edwin. <laughs> hey, my cooking's not that bad. We, we certainly get quite a few people uh, volunteering. It, it it tends to be. Quite a sort of, uh, and I didn't really realise this the first couple of times I, I did this sort of work, but uh, there's a lot to be learned in how you work and develop as a team and interact with one another. It's it's a real lesson in sort of some sort of group therapy. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit like New Zealand's top model, only different. <laughs> <laughs> Well put. I can. I can just. I can only imagine. Yeah. I mean, you know, you you'd have to pick your your, your team. Don't imagine well. too much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. Actually, I, I no showers <laughs> for for three weeks. I don't know about that. <laughs> It'd be a little too oh. cold for my tastes. Well, we we actually end up being quite warm in these container camps. It's when you're based in uh, in tents. In tents, right? Okay. It's a, <laughs> But, well, they'd be specially kitted out, wouldn't they? Lots of thick uh, layers of insulation in that um, in the container. Oh, yeah. So, so Antarctica, New Zealand, um, who are the the government agency that that kit you out and supply the logistics. I mean, they have you resourced and dressed very well. They certainly don't want to lose fingers to frostbite and stuff like that. And the containers are, are actually ex refrigeration containers, so they're already. Uh, insulated. It's just now they're warm on the inside. Right. I gotcha. <laughs> kind of reverse. So, do you have internet access when you're down there? Uh, I try not to, because it's a time waster. No, is, no, is that why? Well, you, you tend to to not have much time to waste, but it's a distraction. And so, you know, it's one of the few opportunities to focus. 
and and really get into the science, I guess. You know, there are there are benefits to having internet access, you know, especially as we actually do quite a bit of this. So you do spend quite a bit of time away from home. So it is quite nice to have contact with, with family and friends and colleagues. But on the other hand, you know, you're... you're um, if you're going to go in the spirit of the great explorers, you might as well not be sort of checking your Facebook page and stuff. <laughs> no, absolutely. You know, one of the greatest uh, experiences I had in the early days of when I was using the internet back in the mid-90s was actually chatting to someone through a text-based chat system, IRC in fact, internet relay chat, to someone who was at least claiming to be an Antarctica at the time, part of the, uh, one of the US uh, research team. Or right. one, of, one of the, you know, one of the <laughs> research teams. I don't know. I couldn't tell you what they were doing, but yeah. So all the big bases are, are well connected to the internet and the telephone, for that matter. It's just there's, there's that, telephone um, services are via satellite, obviously. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's I think you dial O three or something to get to Scott Base. Really? You, yes. How much is it a uh, call? It must be horrendously expensive. Uh, not particularly. No, I don't believe so. Because I know to call uh, ships from New Zealand, if you want to call a ship in the ocean, and I don't know if this uses similar technology or not, it's $20 a minute. Yes, yes. You know, and yes. it's, it's certainly not included in your, you know, $3 kept calls <laughs> for the weekend. Uh, no. <laughs> no. But is that, is, that's kind of what it would cost to, to phone Antarctica as well? For satellite phone calls, I think, what's an Iridium call? Isn't it $5 a minute or something? Yeah. It's, it's not that expensive. All right. Uh, and in the context of the costs of the rest of the mission, if, if the phone calls for a bit of information or to cheer someone up, it's money well spent. Mm, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. It can get, I can imagine it can get pretty uh, lonely out there if you're there for an extended period of time. And you certainly can't just up and move and, and, you know, go to the next town or anything or next camp or anything like that. It just doesn't work like that. Hey, any, any chance of getting photos of penguins when you're there? Um, well, uh, occasionally. We're actually, the time of year and the place we go, we'll see lots of seals. Woodell seals will come and use the holes we drill. And we'll see skewers, which are sort of scavenging birds. But penguin colonies are quite some distance away, so we tend to only see lost ones or annoyed ones. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> annoyed ones, yeah. Well, if you do take any photos of any interesting wildlife, will you will you send a couple of pics through to us? Yeah, no worries. I'd really appreciate that. That'd be fantastic. We can put that up on our website with your permission. Sure, yeah. Great. Does, well, look. Does, interesting, does interesting wildlife include some of the re- researchers that have gone uh, a little crazy after through. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hope, uh, yeah, I hope that doesn't include yourselves. Look, thank you very much for talking to us uh, on the show this week and I want to wish you all the very best with the mission and and hope that it's a, a successful one. Oh, that's great. Thanks thanks for uh, talking and listening. Yeah, well, thanks a lot. Well, thank you. We're very privileged to have you uh, on the show. So, so, Craig, where can people find out more about the mission? Is there a, a website? We, we do, but it has a very complex web address at the moment. They can search for UBC Gavia Erebus Glacier Tongue. There we go. Let's do that. that that's the, the, the easiest way. So on Google, uh, you can type in UBC Gavia Erebus Ere- Glacier Tongue. Right. Brilliant. Okay. And people can find out a little bit more about the work you're doing there through that. Yep. 
So, Craig, thank you very much. No worries. And, Andrew, I want to thank you also uh, once again as well. Thank you, guys. My pleasure. Brett, thank you very much for co-hosting the show as usual. It's been a fantastic show. Always a pleasure, Ed. And thank you to everyone listening to us out there on the internet. That is episode 87 of the Boys of Tech wrapped up. See you again next week. Till then, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.